0: The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And James writes these words. He says, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire You've laid up treasure in the last days But behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields Which you kept back by fraud They're crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is rich. Your word is powerful It is by your word that you speak to us today you being god Who resides in brilliant light in the glory and splendor of heaven And yet who by your spirit empowers the praise of your people you seek to meet us through your living word And your word lord falls on deaf ears apart from your spirit who awakens us And opens up our minds to understand it and captivates our will that we would be drawn to obey it. And so today, O God, as we continue and finish this difficult text that assaults us really in many ways, we pray for Your grace. Your grace to hear, Your grace to understand, and Your grace to submit to You in all things. And it's for the glory of Christ that we pray. Amen. We began last week looking at this text, this text which amounts to a warning to the wealthy. That James lays out in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5 It really continues the theme that James has been playing out all throughout this book As we've studied from verse 1 of chapter 1 Now into the last chapter We've seen that James has been sort of laying out And building illustration after illustration after illustration All on the same theme And the same theme is this Faith without works is a dead faith that cannot save anybody Or to put it a different way Genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ when a person has truly come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior that faith transforms him transforms her and Makes her into the image of Jesus so that it is observable in a changed lifestyle That is James's argument. Yes salvation comes to us by grace through faith alone We can never earn our salvation by doing good things or any acts of obedience This is true, and Paul makes that clear. But James says the flip side is true as well. That when we truly have believed by grace, through faith on the Lord Jesus Christ, and received Him into our heart as Lord and Savior, and submitted ourselves to Him, it will always, inevitably, in every case, show up in a transformed life. And James is challenging the notion that he sees in the context of the congregation of his day. Which is the same thing we see in the context of the congregation in our day. That there are people who attach themselves to the church, who claim to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but whose lives are absolutely exactly like the lives of the lost world around them. And there is no observable difference, even over the long haul. And James says, when we see that, something is terribly wrong. There's something terribly wrong. And James is making the case that what's terribly wrong is, although they claim to know Christ, they don't. And their life is evidence of such. When we know Jesus, He changes us. And we're not the same people we used to be. And it shows up really that that transformation sort of invades really every piece and part of our lives. And that's why james has been moving around in different spheres of our life through this book causing us to Look in the mirror and examine ourselves and ask the question. Have I seen transformation in this area of my life? He's talked about our tongues and the way we speak the kinds of words that come out how we talk about other people When they're present and how we talk about them when they're not He's saying there's a discernible difference between the way believers navigate that and the way the lost world around us navigates that He's talked to us about temptation and trouble when it comes into our life and how we respond to that. And he says believers respond differently when life goes south than lost people do. He's talked to us about how we live in relationship to the world around us. He's talked to us about how we plan for the future and so on and so forth. And when we get to chapter 5, it's though he's becoming more and more personal. And when we get to chapter 5, and he deals with what is one of the most sensitive areas of a person's life. One of the most delicate pieces of our life to challenge. And that's how we navigate with our wealth and with our possessions. With our money and our things. And James is just making the same case. That if we've been transformed by Christ then the way we navigate with our money and with our things is going to look different than the way the world navigates with their money and their things. The way we pursue those things, the way we regard them when we have them, the way we regard them when they're gone, is going to be different. And it's clear that there are those in the church to whom James writes, and those in the surrounding community to whom he would like to communicate, for whom... This needs to be challenged and maybe there are some here today for whom this is an area of life that needs to be challenged James does not condemn wealth he does not condemn possessions as a whole he and in this He's absolutely consistent with the rest of scripture. He doesn't say money is evil or possessions are evil That you should be poor and have nothing. That's not James's argument at all. In fact He argues what the rest of scripture argues that it is quite possible to be both wealthy and godly He just says it's hard It's possible, but it's hard Which is essentially what jesus said when he gave an illustration and he said do you remember? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of god It's the same message jesus had it's possible to be wealthy and godly. It's just hard It's just hard First Timothy chapter 6 Paul writes to the same issue in verse 17. He says this as for the rich in this present age Charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches But on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy They're to do good to be rich in good works To be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Do You see, Paul saying, look, it's possible to be godly and wealthy. It's possible to be both. This is not a condemnation of wealth. He's saying, in fact, it is very possible to be rich in this world and to be rich towards God. And he lays out for us what that looks like. He says the rich person who's also godly is the person whose hope and whose security and whose trust is not set on his wealth But it's set on God He's a person who who does good And is rich in good works Beyond just being rich in money He's a person who's generous and, And ready to share from the wealth That God has blessed him with That she understands what it means To not just store up treasure on earth But also is given to storing up treasure in heaven as well Who understands that true life Real life, eternal life Does not exist here, but it exists there And the wealth that we have here lasts only for a moment the treasure we store up there is forever It's possible to be rich. It's possible to be wealthy and godly It's just hard J.C. Ryle says it this way, and I love this He says money in truth is one of the most Unsatisfying of possessions It takes away some cares no doubt but it brings with it quite as many cares as it takes away. There's trouble in the getting of it. There's anxiety in the keeping it. There are the temptations in the use of it. There's the guilt and the abuse of it. There's the sorrow in the losing of it. There's the perplexity in the disposing of it. Two thirds of all strifes, quarrels, and lawsuits in the world arise from one simple cause money read an article just recently that followed the lives uh, of people who had won the lottery. And it was remarkable to read this article and to see how the winning of the lottery, the, the, sudden, uh, the sudden accumulation of wealth, in more cases than not, in fact, in most cases, absolutely brought more trouble into their lives than they had before the money came. And they often, most often, ended up in worse shape than they were before they won the lottery. It's sort of a life application of what J.C. Ryle is actually arguing here. That money does solve some problems on this life, but it also brings with it a world of other problems. Physical problems beyond just the spiritual. So the problem isn't the wealth. The problem isn't the money. The problem lies in our attitude toward our wealth and possessions and our affections for our love and possessions. In 1st Timothy chapter 6 that same chapter a few verses earlier Paul writes this He says godliness with contentment is great gain For we brought nothing into the world And we cannot take anything out of the world But if we have food and clothing with these we will be content That word content is an important word But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare Into the many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. It's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. It's that desire to be rich. That love and passion for wealth. has caused people, Paul writes, to wander away from the faith and pierces them with many pangs. The problem with our wealth and possessions is that they very easily become for us functional gods? They 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 come for a, become for us functional gods. We would never actually say, well, we worship our wealth and our money, but functionally, that's how we live. Our, our wealth and our money can dominate our minds. They they can captivate our affections. They can consume all of our time. And when they dominate our minds, and they captivate our affections, and they consume all of our time, they have become in fact a functional god. That's what gods do. And that's where the problem lies. I've shared this before when I've spoken on the issue of money and wealth and possessions. It's a story from, it's actually an illustration from a book called The Day America Told the Truth. It's a bit of a dated book now, but the illustration is still pretty powerful. In it, the author quotes a survey that was done in America. And the study was this, what would you do for $10 million? What would you do for $10 million? And I'll just David just go put the whole the whole deal up there so you can see what people would do for ten million dollars. Twenty five percent would abandon their entire family. Twenty five percent would abandon their church. I think that, there's liars. There probably seventy five percent would do that. There's a lot of churches out there, right? Twenty three percent would become prostitutes for a week or more for ten million bucks. What about that? Give up their American citizenship. Sixteen percent. Sixteen percent would leave their spouses. would hold testimony and let a murderer go free. 7% of people in the survey would kill somebody for 10 million bucks. Wow. Now you and I look at that list and we say, man, I I don't think I would do any of those things for 10 million bucks. But it just shows for us the power of money and wealth to captivate and to motivate, right? People to do things that they would never normally do. And it is in this that we find the problem. And that's what James is challenging here in James chapter 5. He's saying, listen, you cannot be in love with money and be in love with God at the same time. You cannot serve your wealth and possessions and serve God at the same time. If your lifestyle uh, paints a picture of a love of wealth and possessions, the reality is you probably don't know Christ. And you need to repent and trust Christ. And so that's what James is challenging here in this text. He's calling out the rich. He says, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. I mean, that's a a sort of a bold and stirring sort of a beginning, right? Come on now. Hey, wake up, you rich people. This wealth that you think you have, that you're enjoying, it's going to kill you. That's what he's saying. And James challenges them on the very premise. He says, here is why your wealth and your possessions are going to kill you. Here's what's wrong with the way that you have gained and are dealing with wealth and possessions that has corrupted your soul. And he told us last week, we saw the first point in verses 2 through 3. He says to them this. One of the problems with your wealth and possessions is this. It's been selfishly hoarded. It's been selfishly hoarded. You saw that in verses 2 and 3. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded. And the corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. And all that is saying is, look, you've got all this stuff. You've got all the things that are sig- signifying wealth in your day. You have lots of food where people are starving. You have lots of clothes where most people only have one set to wear. You have lots of silver and gold where most people have none. In fact, you've got so much of it. You've got pile after pile after pile pile of it that you've hoarded so much you can't even use it. The food is rotting because you'll never get to eat it. The clothes are getting eaten by moths because you have so many you'll never wear them all. The gold and the silver stuff is tarnishing you don't ever, you don't ever polish it because you never even used it. It's just hoarded. And James says this is an evidence of a sinful a sinful, sinful perspective on your wealth and possessions. You have hoarded lavishly stuff that you don't need for no other reason than you love it and don't want to part with it when you're surrounded by a world in need who could desperately use it. And he says because of it you've you've laid up treasure in the last days and he's not talking about a good treasure he's talking about a bad treasure. So that's the first problem. The first problem For the rich that they need to wake up from is this concept of selfishly hoarding their things. Well beyond what they could ever use or need. But that brings us to a second point that James makes in verse 4. And we need to listen to this. He says, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Verse 6. You've condemned and murdered the righteous man. He does not resist you. This brings us to the second characteristic of these rich people that condemns them and their perspective on money and wealth. First, it was selfishly hoarded. Second, their wealth was unjustly gained. It was unjustly gained. They acquired their wealth at the expense of other people. As is often the case with people who accumulate wealth, not always, but as often the case with people who accumulate the wealth, these people have acquired their wealth at the expense of other people. And we find that the primary thing they've been doing is ripping off poor working class people. The poor workers who are mowing the lawn are getting ripped off so these guys can store up and hoard their wealth. They've been holding back their wages and it's important to understand that in James' day, most people were poor peasants who were, were workers, who worked with their hands, who worked and lived barely, you know, made just enough income to barely survive. It wouldn't have been uncommon for them to work for a day in order to buy food for their family for the next day and go to work the next day in order to earn money to buy food for their family for the following day. They couldn't afford a lawyer to go to court and sue anybody. They couldn't risk, even then, being blacklisted from work altogether. If you complain against the rich man who employs you, he won't employ you anymore, and he may tell the other rich people, and they won't employ you, and then you starve to death. So what do you do? You take it. You have no choice but to take it. These workers didn't get paid. Their families often didn't eat. And here these greedy, wealthy landowners were hoarding up all of this wealth and they were in the midst of that in order to hoard it up. They were withholding pay from these poor workers. They were either withholding it for various reasons, keeping the wages for themselves, or they would pay them only a, a portion of what was agreed upon in order to get them to come back the next day and go to work. Or they would employ all sorts of other methodology Intended at the end of the day to cheat the worker and to pad their own pockets. What was the result of all that? Well, the result of all that, James says, that some of these workers are starving to death. Verse 6, you've murdered the righteous person. What's he talking about? He's not talking about they went out and and got a, a, a knife and stabbed them to death. He's talking about you withheld their wages they couldn't afford to eat and they died. You're literally robbing the poor in order to Hoard wealth for yourself. The reference here, some commentators say, could be to the idea that what would happen often is when very poor people did happen to own land or when someone had land and they became poor for various reasons, what would often happen is the rich could take them to court and order to confiscate their land. And if you had to do that, Got taken to court and your land was confiscated by a rich person often what you people would do They really had nothing else to do But they could then hire themselves out to the rich person who just confiscated their land in order to work the land to be able to Have some money to live McCartney writes this he says the oppression of the poor Is contrary to faith It's akin to murder because it condemns the poor to poverty and extreme poverty is soul-destroying It defaces the image of God in people. And thus, it insults the poor person's maker. And he's right. To defraud the poor, to rob the poor, who are made in the image of God, is to rob and defraud the God who made that man and who supplies his needs. Proverbs 14.31 says this, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. This is exactly what James is reflecting. God's word is crystal clear on this particular matter. This kind of practice has absolutely been forbidden as long as God has been God. From the very beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 24, back in verses 14 and 15, you see, at the very beginning of the establishment of the Old Testament law, God had provided for the the needs, the physical needs, particularly the food needs of the poor. He says this, You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he's one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land, within your towns. You shall give him his wages when? On the same day before the sun sets. For he's poor and he counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. I mean, God has always said to withhold the wages of a man or a woman who's done their work, particularly a poor person, is to sin against God. But the problem is, in James' culture and in our culture, the wealthy often think they're invincible and can do whatever they want to and have no concerns about any repercussions. Frankly, we could give illustration after illustration of that in our culture The most prominent and most contemporary are the variety of of illustrations that have come in the recent me Too movement Where we've seen time and time and time again wealthy men taking advantage of women Who were powerless to do anything about it? Why? simply because they're wealthy and they could Using their wealth and and their power to gain an advantage, knowing that there was no way that the person that they were sinning against could do anything in response. It's the same thing that James is talking about. It's using wealth and power to take advantage of the powerless. God made clear his intentions back in Leviticus chapter 19. Look at verses 9 through 10 of that. He says he's, this: he's establishing the laws for when the, the, his people came into the promised land. And he said, look, you're going to get into the promised land and you're going to have lots of land to, to harvest and to, to grow food. And for you landowners, here's a rule for you. Here's a law for you. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. That's the part that falls on the ground after, when you're harvesting. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor or for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. What was, what was God saying? He was saying, listen, there's a provision for the poor. Not everybody's rich and wealthy and has land like you. So when you harvest your land, you leave some on the edges. When you go through your land and you're doing your harvest, the stuff that falls on the ground, don't pick it up. You just leave it there. And the grapes in your vineyard the same way. That's my provision for the poor who don't have land to harvest, they can come to the edge of your land and they can come behind you and pick up what's left. And that's my way of providing them with food. But you know what would happen? What do you think happened? There were wealthy people who looked at that and said, that's bad business. That's my profits going down the tubes. And so they'd reap right to the edge and they'd pick up the gleanings and they'd leave nothing. Doing exactly the same thing that James is talking about here. Sinning against God and starving the poor in order to pad their own wealth. But God has another view of these things, doesn't he? It's time, I guess, maybe to stop and just make a note. How does this apply today? Well, I think it, at least in one way it applies. It applies to people who today in our day and age and in our culture who either own businesses or who are business managers. People who have authority and ability to control the wages that people underneath them are paid. I think James would at least say to us this morning, God cares about how you treat the people who work for you. God cares about the way you go about paying the people who work for you. God knows when you take advantage of those who have no recourse to be able to do anything about it. He knows. I have a new friend that I, I met recently who was sharing his, his story. He, he grew up in a different country in a different culture. And um, by God's great providence, was able to make it to the United States of America but when he came here, he had no papers and he didn't know the language. And he said when he got here, he got to New York City and he had to he had to get a job to do something to make some money to live. And so he, he started working construction. And he said, I got a, a job working construction for like $2 an hour. Just a couple bucks an hour. I said, really? A couple bucks an hour? That's illegal, isn't it? And he said, yeah, but if you don't have papers, what are you going to do about it? You take what you can get. You take what you can get. Nobody owes you anything. They can do whatever they want. It's exactly right. They can, and they do. It's not just. It's not just James Day, is it? Another way this applies, I think, is this. In fact, sort of playing off of that illustration, there's a a wealth of people in our culture right now who are people who live here but are not documented citizens of this nation. Now, you may have political feelings about how that's come about or how it should be dealt with, but regardless of what you think about those matters, it's wrong to take advantage of somebody who finds himself in that position. Yet it happens all the time. We can hire people who are illegal Because we know we can do whatever we want and they certainly can't take us to court So they're prime territory to be taken advantage of And people do all the time Pay them far less than a a fair wage simply because they can And because they're powerless to do anything about it The message James is trying to say is listen you might be able to get away with that legally But God sees And God knows He sees and he knows In fact, he says this The, 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 the cries of the oppressed Those who feel powerless And who are the, the, sort of the recipients of this injustice Their cries Rise to the ears of the Lord of hosts Isn't that what he said? He said this in verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. I mean, that's interesting. The wages are crying out. It's like they have a money bag in the back of the rich man's office, and he's going out at the end of the day, and the money out of the bag is screaming out, Let me loose! I belong to that guy. I mean, that's a vivid illustration, isn't it? The money is crying out to God. Money's crying out of God. The wages of the laborers, which you kept back, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters, that's the cries of the people, have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. What do people do when you're poor and you're taken advantage of and you have no recourse? Well, you cry out to God because that's the only thing you can do. And the message James is wanting to convey is not just a message to the rich, but it's a message to the poor. And the message is this. When you're taken advantage of, when you're the recipient of injustice, you can cry out to me and I will hear you. I may not act immediately to resolve the situation. I may not bring immediate justice to your scenario, but I hear and I will bring ultimate justice. It will come. It will come. Even though the wealthy can hide their injustice in society, they can't hide it from God. He knows their deeds and he'll hold them accountable. In fact, it says here that their cries rise up to the Lord of hosts. That word Lord of hosts is an interesting sort of description of God. It's not one that we see all that often in the scriptures. And off the surface, it doesn't uh, really, uh, it isn't too vivid to us. Sometimes you'll see that translated to Lord Sabaoth. It's one of our our songs that we sing sometimes. I can't remember which one it is. Oh shoot, is it? mighty fortress is our God. Lord Sabaoth is his name. You may not have known what that means. It means the Lord of hosts. It means the Lord of heavenly armies. It's a picture of God as the captain of a heavenly army coming to bring justice to the poor. It's a really vivid image. The cries of the money bag and the cries of the harvesters, these poor people who are being taken advantage, have risen to the Lord and the Lord is assembling the armies of heaven and He's coming to lead them against these wealthy people who are taking advantage. It's a pretty devastating, frightful picture. You think you're getting away with taking advantage of the poor and padding up your, your hordes of stuff on their backs. But God is coming and He's bringing an army and your money won't do one single thing to help you. It's a vivid picture. It's, it's a picture of wealth that's unjustly gained. That's gained at somebody else's expense. How is it that we go about accumulating our wealth for ourselves? Is our benefit someone else's pain? Pain? Well, it was in James' day. There's a third category that he brings to us here. It's not just that they had selfishly hoarded things. It's not that their wealth was just unjustly gained. But he mentions a third thing in verse 5. It's this. Your wealth is lavishly spent. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Verse 5. They've lavishly spent their wealth only on themselves. There was a show that used to come on TV, I can remember it when I was a kid, that's probably on reruns somewhere. Those of you my age or older can probably remember it. It was called The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Do you remember that show? Raise your hand if you remember that show. Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. It was a popular show. I remember as a kid, I used to like to watch that one, you know. They'd be like a whole expose they There'd be some rich and famous person, and they would do a whole show on their lavish lifestyle. You'd see their home, you'd see all the things that they had, and you would see all the things that their wealth had had purchased for them. And in an American culture that's driven by consumerism, that says that the the main goal of of life in this culture and society is to accumulate as much wealth as you can accumulate. I mean, that kind of a show had ears, and it played. And I remember as a kid watching, going, wow, what must it be like to live like that? That Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, it impressed me. It impressed me. But James is saying that kind of lifestyle does not impress God. What is the lifestyle he's talking about here? He's talking about a lifestyle that's lived solely for pleasure. That's fat and lazy and self-indulgent and has no concern for anyone else. It's the kind of, of life that's built solely for pleasure. The pursuit of pleasure is the driving force of the life. It's a giving oneself over to the pursuit of pleasure. It's a life without any self-denial anywhere in the picture. And a life without self-denial will very quickly go out of control. It'll go out of control. And that's why the wealthy are often miserable. That's why when you read all the stories about the Hollywood stars who are wealthy, you end up with stories of drugs and affairs and all sorts of vices and misery that have come to them as a result of their luxurious, self-indulgent lives without any self-control or self-denial. Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 24 and 25, and here's the rub for James, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him, say this part with me, deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whatever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. At the core of being a follower of Christ is the concept of self-denial. Of dying to myself and living for Christ. See, this is the rub for James. He says to these rich people, your lifestyle says to everyone who can see you that you do not live a life of denial of self and love for Christ. In fact, you live the opposite of that. A life given over to wanton self-pleasure. The opposite of what Christ calls us to. You've pampered yourself. McCartney writes this. He says it's not the simple enjoyment of material blessings that James here condemns, but the sybaritic enjoyment of material wealth that has been unrighteously obtained. Get this. To withhold wages is to steal from those who are less powerful, and to indulge in luxury with those stolen wages is doubly offensive. Do you get the point? For these folks, the main pursuit of their life is personal pampering. There's no view toward God. It's self-pampering. James says, listen, if this is what your money and your wealth and your possessions do to you, if this is how it manifests in your life, it's driven you to live a life that is completely revolving around you and pampering yourself, and that's the primary pursuit of your entire life, Don't claim to know Christ. Christ hasn't transformed your heart. You don't know him. In fact, he says this you fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Now, when you read that, you wonder what in the world does that mean? You fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. It's a very vivid imagery. It's the image just think of a field with lots of cows. And what do the cows do in the field? Don't tell me, moo. I know that. They move. Why is it that we say moo when we go by them? What do they say about us? I don't know. What do cows do? They walk around and they, they eat. And the farmer keeps putting out lots of stuff. Why? Because he wants them to, to eat. Because the more they eat, what happens? The fatter they get. And the farmer wants them to eat lots and enjoy lots so that they can get really fat. Why? Because the farmer wants to eat them. Right? Isn't that right? And so the picture is a cow out there just gorging himself on all this wonderful food, going, man, look at this, I'm living the life. i got all this food given to me. I'm getting fat. Man, this is the life. And he doesn't realize he's being fattened up to be killed. Right? To be killed. Alistair Begg quoted somebody who I don't know. And it's just such a beautiful quote. I had to, I had to tell it to you. He said this. Oh, to be a thin cow on the day the butcher comes. That's a great one, isn't it? Oh, to be a thin cow on the day the butcher comes. Right? James is saying, you rich people, you're like the fat cows walking around in the, bar- in the barnyard. You're gorging yourself on all the wealth of the world. You're gorging yourself. You're living it up and you think you are living a life. You don't realize that you're just fattening yourselves for a slaughter that's about to come. That's pretty vivid, isn't it? Mm. In fact, it sends a little shiver down my spine. See, the problem with a luxurious, self-indulgent life is this. There's never enough luxury. And there's never enough wealth. And it never fully satisfies. A guy by the name of James Al Tuker said this. He's a wealthy man. He said this. I thought if I could make $10 million then it must be too easy. In fact, I honestly thought everyone else had probably already made $11 million. So then I felt poor again. I now needed to make $100 million to be happy. Now that's probably a hard quote to, to relate to for those of us who don't have $10 million. But it testifies to the reality that wealth never fully satisfies no matter how much you accumulate. And you could go to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We don't have time this morning. And you could listen to the testimony of Solomon, a rich man who had more wealth than anyone before him and anyone in his day. And he'd accumulated piles and piles of stuff and money. And he said at the end of it, you know what? It's just vanity. It's like chasing after the wind. You're chasing after something that you're never are able to catch. It's a waste of time. It's a fool's errand. Chesterton said this. This is worth remembering. To be clever enough to get all that money, one must be stupid enough to want it. I'll read it to you again. To be clever enough to get all that money, one must be stupid enough to want it. And so James concludes, what's the problem? Why this condemnation on these rich people? Why these warnings? Why do they stand for us today? Because the temptations are real and they're still powerful. It's still tempting for people to lavishly hoard their wealth, particularly in a culture like ours where, where what, the, what how do you even define that compared to the rest of the world? It's still tempting to be able to navigate in business or to be able to navigate in life in such a way that you're, you're benefiting at somebody else's expense, that you're taking advantage of a poor person in order to build your account. There's still the temptation to live a life that just revolves around sort of lavish self-pleasure. And James is just arguing that this is incongruent with faith in jesus christ the bible has made clear how believers ought to invest their money and i'm just going to put this list up there for you with very little comment because our time is up but i want you to see it the scriptures talk to us about how we should invest our wealth and our money what do we do with it when we're blessed with income and wealth when we have more when it comes to us what do we do with it just so you can put the whole the whole list up there for us dave We're told that we're to honor the Lord with our first fruits. We get that uh, from passages like Proverbs chapter 3. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your produce. The idea is simply this. As the Lord blesses us with income, we we honor the Lord with that by giving back a portion of it as an offering to him. It's a way of saying, Lord, this money isn't going to rule me. It belongs to you. It came from you. I'm grateful for it. I'm going to let go of some of it and I'm going to regularly practice letting go of some of it so that I don't fall too in love with it. It says, I'm going to give away some of it, Lord, because that helps me battle against my natural greed. I'm going to give back some of it to you because it's a constant reminder to me every time I do that, that you are the source of my wealth. Scriptures tell us we're to provide for our families. First Timothy 5.8, if anyone doesn't provide for his relatives, and especially the members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It's a biblical responsibility for us to provide for our families, to take care of our families. We're to give generously and cheerfully to help other people. Romans 13 tells us we're to pay taxes, and we all give a collective groan this time of the year. The Bible tells us we're to plan wisely for the future. The Proverbs speak to this. And 1 Timothy chapter 6 says you use use the rest for personal and family enjoyment. This is how we use our wealth. This is how we use it. It's for the rich in this present age. We read this earlier. Um, don't, Don't put your hope on the money, but on God who richly provides us with everything. Why? Say it with me. To enjoy. God isn't against your joy. He isn't against your pleasure. He isn't against you having a joyful life and enjoying nice things and enjoying some entertainment and going out to a nice dinner and wearing clothes that are nice and driving a car that works and is fashionable. He isn't against all of those things. Those things aren't the problem. The problem is our attitude toward the money and the wealth and our love for it versus our love for him. You know, as we kind of wrap this piece up, I'm just reminded that James, from start to finish, has been like a punch in the jaw left and right each week because James is, is giving us things one after the other that are, that are measures by which we have to measure ourselves. And I think probably if you're like me, every single one of these measures, you look at your own self in the mirror and you find roots of those sins in your heart. And it almost can drive you, if you're not careful, to despair. You can look at this and say, how could I ever live up? How could I ever live up? I have more than I could ever use. I don't give nearly as much as I ought to give away. I have more things than I, I need to have I don't I don't say the things I ought to say all the time I don't always respond to temptation and trouble the way I ought to And it can be Lord a sort of like a pounding into the ground But I, that's why I want to close with a reminder of James 4 6 and James 4 10 Because there are those who argue that James is all about the law But James doesn't speak to the issue of grace And I want to say on the contrary James chapter 4 verses 6 and 10 David if you'll put those up for me are are sort of the central feature of what James wants us to remember at each one of these sections. The moment we start to feel beat down by this stuff, we're to go back to verse 6 and say, remember this, He gives more, say that word with me, grace. The exposure of my sin is intended not to drive me to despair, but to to drive me to Christ, who is gracious and who is merciful Who shed his blood on the cross for every sin I could ever possibly commit, including my materialism and bad attitude toward my wealth. It's intended to drive me to Christ where I find in Him and at the cross more grace to forgive that very sin. And it's to drive me to the Lord where I might humble myself before Him and say, Lord, I understand what you're saying here and I feel sort of the pinch of it in my life, but... The the reality is I cannot pull myself up by the bootstraps and fix all of this in my own life. The only thing I can do is humble myself before you, submit my life to you, and pray that you would please take my humble efforts and lift me up and help me in these areas. That my life might look more like you. And so as we wrap up this little piece this morning, I want to challenge you this. Look at this area of your life. Look at this area of your life, how you're managing your wealth and the possessions that God has blessed you with. And ask the question, am I honoring the Lord with this, or, or, or do some of these condemnations of the rich fall on me? And whatever the Lord exposes to you, run to Him. Seek His forgiveness and His grace. It's abundant and merciful. Where our sin abounds, His grace abounds even more. He is gracious and merciful and will forgive. Commit your life to Change. But in doing so, humble yourself before the Lord and say, Lord, hum- Lord, I, I'm going I'm to work at this, but I have no hope apart from your help. Please work out my salvation and work it into me as I try to live it out, that I might honor you with my life. Let's pray together. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you're thinking, well, what in the world's wrong with ha- accumulating wealth and all of this stuff? If you don't know what it means to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's a very rational way to respond to this.